0: I'm Krista Tippett, today, Living Islam, the nature and meaning of Muslim identity in nine very different American lives.
1: We skate, we snowboard, we make art, we make music, we fall in love, we slam poetry, we go baggy, we go skinny, but we also pray, we memorize Quran, we fast, we give in charity, we educate, and we represent.
2: Personally, I have lectured to thousands of Americans. No one has ever asked me a question about science. As if all that Islam has given to humanity is a bunch of not case terrorists. But also being Muslim in America makes me a better Muslim, one with more hope for the future.
3: My journey as an artist has been fortuitous, touched by an air of serendipity, and also has been very random. And that just goes to show you sometimes Allah works in mysterious
0: ways, as we say. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us.
2: This public radio podcast is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its Campaign for
0: Love and Forgiveness, online at loveandforgive.org. I'm Krista Tippett. In Western public discourse, we use terms like Islam and the Muslim world as though there is a monolithic reality behind them. This hour, we draw out a range of voices and stories that embody the breadth of this faith of 1.5 billion people, which is often obscured by both violent headlines and unconvincing platitudes. These voices also reveal a creative convergence of Islamic spirituality and American identity that is unfolding largely unnoticed in the U.S. From American Public Media. This is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, living Islam.
4: I mean there's so many things I think that are beautiful about Islam, but one of the most beautiful aspects of Islam, that multiplicity and singularity of experience that's celebrated. Both are celebrated
2: meeting muslims from pakistan from india from china from japan these muslims i have met only in america and it made me realize my god this is really an international religion
1: the way the tribal people used to entertain themselves was through poetry and it's very close to uh, slam poetry you know i was thinking back to like you know some Quran that I actually have memorized and I'm like wow, I, I really see where this is a natural progression of that tradition.
5: Some people are Muslim by birth and some by choice and I am the latter. This religion in particular tells you you choose your own path, you use your own brain. I really think that abayas are beautiful and abaya just makes my life so much easier. I wear whatever I want underneath, pop an abaya over it and wrap up a hijab and I'm good to go. No worries.
6: You have the static Muslims who tend to take all the media coverage. They are also these fluid Muslims who just want to live their everyday life. And then you also have to realize that there's those Muslims who don't practice the faith at all. And this is one of the points that never gets communicated.
0: These are a few of the hundreds of voices we heard in response to a query we issued a few months ago on how Muslim faith and practice is woven into the fabric of modern lives. We released some of their stories about Ramadan two weeks ago in the first part of this series. For this program, we've pulled together rich and varied insights into the nature and meaning of Muslim identity in nine very different American lives. There are some recurring themes that run throughout the essays we received and the follow-up conversations we've had. Many describe how the events of September 11, 2001, imprinted them personally. They've talked about how tricky it can be in places to unravel Islamic religious tradition from multitudinous cultural traditions. In the United States, of course, this is both complicated and loosened by the experience of immigration. We begin with Wajahat Ali, who's recently gained acclaim for his play, The Domestic Crusaders, about a multi generational Pakistani American Muslim family. That's also the starting point of his own life story.
3: I was born and raised here, actually in the Bay Area, California. My father has your almost typical American dream type story. Uh, came here from Pakistan as a young man, did his college year worked to support himself, and went to school, sent money back uh, to the motherland, eventually the grandparents came. And uh, believe it or not, uh, in America, I've actually had a traditional household set where my grandparents had actually lived with me growing up, and even my grandmother still lives with us. And a large part of this is motivated by a, um, a faith-based motivation, taking care of elders, respecting your family. You know, as they say, there's the hadith the saying of the Prophet Muhammad that says, you know, Heaven lies beneath the feet of your mother.
0: Wujahat originally trained as a lawyer. And as the domestic crusaders premiered off-Broadway to good buzz, he's been giving thought to how Islamic spirituality shapes his reaction to success.
3: Being a minority in America, especially Muslim-American, there is a general assumption that the pie is small, that there can be only one Muslim-American playwright, and there can be only one Muslim-American poet, and you know the mainstream corporations in mainstream America will latch on and promote that you know the one Pakistani Muslim writer, and if another Pakistani Muslim writer gets there, it's over for the rest of us. But this is where my faith-based background has really helped me, because there can be many, and there will be money. And the second thing that has espoused is this is a Muslim American play and Muslim American art. It's by us but for everyone. The whole play in my journey as an artist has been fortuitous, if you will, uh, you know, touched by an air of serendipity and also has been very random to be honest. I've have fallen into it without the you know, any great aspirations or or grand designs. And that just goes to show you sometimes, you know, Allah works in mysterious ways, as we say, correct? Mm-hmm and uh you know as a as a muslim to use an artist's metaphor you know being muslim is a, a spiritual work in progress where um, you you know you, you strive for perfection knowing full well you'll never achieve it and perhaps that is a sadistic quest by a madman or masochism by a well-intentioned upstart or perhaps it's just the way things are meant to be you know and and that so that all these events which are just uh, fortuitous uh can allow me to greater know myself and know my creator. Uh, And so the spiritual path of mine is the underlying path, which then gets manifested in everything that I do, whether it be law or art. And, you know, with art, where I just got this email, I was just telling a friend recently, where a gentleman who is a young Pakistani-American and a Muslim-American emails me and says, you know, I just want you to know I've been following your writing. I had given up on playwriting, but seeing your example has made me restart. So thank you. And another person told me he says you have to realize there's an entire community that's that's riding on your success with this play because it will give them hope that uh, they don't have to be just doctors and engineers. And like I keep saying, something you realize you're, you're tapping into something greater than yourself. And I think that's what kills any notions of pettiness or selfishness or competition in me. And it's not because you know I'm like some spiritual Zen master. <laughs> or like a splinter or a Yoda. It's, it's something that I have worked on for about 10 years ever since I was college, trying to purify one's intentions. You know, our actions are predicated upon our intentions in Islam. And uh, I've tried really hard to repeatedly and conscientiously remind myself of why I'm doing what I'm doing.
2: I really had no idea I was Muslim when I was young and growing up in Kuwait in the 1960s. Until one day when mom told me that we cannot have a Christmas tree because we're not Christian, we're just Muslims. I screamed and said, but May and Dina, who happen to be our Iraqi Christian neighbors, they do have one and they have toys under the trees. It's not fair. Well, a few months later, May came knocking to our house and asking me to convert her to Islam, simply because we were celebrating our Eid, our Muslim holiday, and we were being given cash and money. She begged me to recite the Shahada, which is to witness that there is no God but God, and Muhammad is a prophet of God. I was six years old, and I don't know... Till to this day, why on earth I didn't do it? Why I didn't allow May to recite the Shahada after me? I knew then that I could be in trouble. But really, when I grew up, I realized that Islam was not just repeating a sentence. It was actually a way of life. I really was forced to learn and read about my faith a few years after moving to the USA, which was in 1989. I enjoyed approaching the text of the Quran from a student's perspective rather than a worshiper. As a worshiper, I was reciting a kind of a sacred text, but as a student, I was indulging myself in an exciting search for knowledge. Living in the USA and being exposed to so many different Muslims from so many different countries and cultures made me realize that there are many faces to Islam. I think this was the most interesting development in my faith and in my life to understand that most Muslims really are not Arabs and there are so many faces and pictures and cultures related to Islam that is not founded in the Arabic culture. However, what I have never imagined while I was growing up in Kuwait, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and in Jordan, that one day I, Samar, will be asked to speak publicly to Americans in defense of the faith. You know, I thought I might be talking about the tenets, the articles, religion, zakah, prayers, but never to defend my faith in America. So being a Muslim in America has meant for me to be waiting to answer the next email circulating, which could be describing how an American Muslim can never be a good citizen because we have to kill Christians and Jews. The more I received these emails, the more I learned about my faith and discovered that it also talks about embryology and geology, geography and astronomy. But I never get a question about such topics. Personally, I have lectured to thousands of Americans. No one has ever asked me a question about science. As if all that Islam has given to humanity is a bunch of not case terrorists. But also being Muslim in America makes me a better Muslim. One with more hope for the future. I've had hundreds of amazing messages of love and support. Just this past Saturday morning I was in the company of very, a very intellectual group of retired men and women. The oldest was like 95. They invited me to talk to them on a Saturday morning because they wanted to know more about Islam from a Muslim. And for this I'm forever grateful to be a Muslim in America.
0: Summer and Wajahat were also part of our Revealing Ramadan series, a special podcast and radio program in which they told vivid stories from inside Islam's holiest month. You can listen to these stories and others and unedited interviews on our website, speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Living Islam looking inside the nature and meaning of Muslim identity in nine very different American lives. <music> the summer girah who you just heard, mentioned the converts she began to meet in the U.S. And an intriguing spectrum of converts responded to our query on Muslim identity. Several of them, who grew up in Eastern Orthodox and Baptist churches, live in Texas. Maria Romero wrote to us from Seattle, where she is a lawyer. She married an Arab Muslim man in a great big Mexican Catholic wedding with a mariachi band. But she didn't come to Islam herself until after that marriage had ended. She read part of her essay and spoke with my producer, Trent Gillis.
5: I'm pretty well known for my directness and my sharp tongue, and I don't think that's in Muslim women. I think we're expected to be quiet <laughs> and submissive. Um, but I think if I had not become a Muslim, I would never have polished my soul and made my anger mean something more than just being angry. And I think submitting to a lot eased pain that I had hid in my heart for so long and made burdens bearable and made me very grateful every day for what I have. I think living in Seattle makes it easier to be Muslim there are so many cultures here that you're allowed to be what you are. And I've had great experiences in Seattle with random people on the street who comment something like, oh, it's great that you can still wear your cultural clothing and whatnot. <laughs> and, you know, if they only knew my cultural clothing are the T-shirt and jeans that I'm generally wearing underneath my abaya, and I don't think you can get more American than a you know, pair of jeans and a T-shirt. Um, mostly I worry for my daughter. I suspect that teachers treat her differently after I walk into school for open house wearing a abaya and hijab. She chooses not to wear hijab. Um, there's a lot to tell. There's never enough room to tell. Muslims are not just Arabs or Pakistanis. And I really wish you, the world, could see us as we see us. We're a really strong, independent, and hardworking, loving culture clash of mixed and, yes, sometimes dysfunctional family that spans the globe and aren't all blended families struggling to get it right. Does America have it right yet some 233 years after it was founded? I don't think so. Um, I had shared with NPR a group picture of Muslims who took part in the Edmonds, Washington, 2009 Fourth of July Parade. And my daughter and I took part in that parade, and she said, you know, the 4th is my favorite holiday. And I hope for her sake that that's what others will see, just another American teenager. She talks back. She loves bright colors and science. She loves her friends, both Muslim and non-Muslim. And she loves the 4th of July because she's an American Muslim through and through.
1: Not only do you wear the hijab, but you also wear the abaya. Yeah. And I'm just curious how you came to that point, uh, to that point, and what does that mean to you?
5: You're not going to get the most religiously correct answer, actually. Well, <laughs> um, they're beautiful. I really think that abayas are beautiful. And on the religious side, you don't have to struggle, or I don't have to struggle, with is the shirt long enough to cover my bum, are, you know, generally if you find a long skirt in an American store, it'll have slits up the side or a slit up the back, Um, and it's not always easy to tailor it. If you sew it shut, then you can't walk in it, and Abaya just makes my life so much easier. Um, I wear whatever I want underneath, pop an Abaya over it, and wrap up a hijab, and I'm good to go. (laughs) No worries. And so... I'm covered in the way I believe I should be covered, and those, seriously.
1: That, that doesn't get much more American than that. It's a great story. <laughs> it's practical. Yes.
5: I've, I've been asked some interesting things, such as, which wife are you? And I turned around and stated, well, what do you mean, which wife am I? Yeah, one, two, three, or four. Things like that, you have to treat them with humor. Uh-huh. You, you really have to. Or where's your dot? And I said, the dot. So they assumed I was Hindu. And I said, no, that's a different religion. Some things you have to treat with humor and some things you have to treat with directness. And I'm kind of sarcastic in my humor. Um, And some things have to be treated much more forcefully. Hmm. And one has to be able to judge the situation. And sometimes you can't, to be honest. If you're rushing out of the grocery store and you're thinking 10 steps ahead, oh, my God, I have to get home, I have to make dinner, I have to pick up my kid at soccer, da-da-da-da-da, and somebody not intending to ask a question, sometimes you won't answer it the way you wished. One should always ask, even if you think you're not asking the right question or it's kind of intrusive. Yes, there are some questions I won't answer from men, but I wouldn't answer them anyway, Hmm. even if I wasn't Muslim because it's none of their business.
0: Nikisha Pettiford is of Jamaican descent and converted to Islam 13 years ago. In Islam, she found, she says, a religion that was not afraid of her questions.
7: I grew up in a Christian household, my mother is Catholic, my father is non-denominational Christian, so we grew up that way a lot of our lives. Around the age of 15 or 16, I found myself with many, many questions that the church simply could not answer. And in college, I was um, muttering around and taking different courses on religion, and it was the religion of Islam that actually appealed to me. And after a great deal of classes and research and asking questions, I discovered this is the truth. This is what's my truth. And so I went forward with it and I embraced Islam and became a Muslim. And once you become Muslim, it's not just a matter of a religion. It becomes a way of life. So there's an ongoing learning process. And then there's a process of introducing it to your family and letting them know, you know, there's certain changes that's going on in my life. And that doesn't exclude you from my life. It's just something that, you know, we'll grow to do together.
0: Nikisha lives in Philadelphia, is a mother of three, and leads a Girl Scout troop. She works in the health insurance field. And as she told Trent Gillis, she's learned how to integrate the practicalities of Islamic devotion, from fasting during Ramadan to five daily prayers, into the corporate environment.
7: Occasionally there are moments that can become uncomfortable. For example, in the interviewing process or with meeting new people for religious reasons, women... We don't have skin-to-skin contact with men. And so that can cause an awkward moment where you need to simply explain, oh, for religious reasons, this is something that I just don't do, and usually just divert past that to whatever issue you were actually discussing. So sometimes it's simply in the approach, how you say it to them, that makes a a huge difference. Sometimes it leads to an additional question, and sometimes it just leads to acceptance and understanding.
8: Hmm. So things as simple as a handshake?
7: something as simple as a handshake. Hmm. Uh,
1: So how have you found ways of adapting to that without belaboring the point?
7: Um, I don't know. I I really think that most issues, once the person becomes accustomed to you doing it, it it becomes non-consequential for them as well. It's just a matter of being a way of life. For example, um, when you do the five daily prayers before you pray, you have to do a certain washing called wudu. And so this basically means you're standing in the bathroom and you're washing certain parts of your body, your hands, your face, your arms, so on and so forth. So initially people will stare at you like, you know, what are you doing? And then sometimes they'll even go so far as to pose a question. Again, it's the approach. You just say matter-of-factly, you know, I have to pray. This is what I do before I pray. It's not something that interferes with their life. It's not something that interferes with their day. And over time they simply become accustomed to it. For us we're thankful for all the things that god gave us and so we have to spend we have to spend at least these five times a day praying and it takes us a minute to take our minds off of the matters of this life we focus on the things that uh we've been given and we show thanks for the things that we've been given and when you return to your work after that you tend to have have a greater focus because you remember okay the purpose of my being here is this the purpose of my working is specifically for this reason and i'd like to do all things uh, for the sake of God and showing myself as the best person, best Muslim that I can be. Something that I uh, say to my three children often mm-hmm. is a hadith or a saying from our Prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He often. Someone came to him once, and they asked him who is most worthy or deserving of my companionship, which means who has the most rights over me. And the prophet said to the person, your mother. And so the person said to him, and then who? And again he said, your mother. And then again he said, and who? And then the prophet again said, your mother. And then he said, and then who? And then he said, and then then your father, which contrary to some uh, false beliefs, shows the high status of women in this
2: religion.
1: Akeisha. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I've heard that story um, three or four times during these interviews. I've never heard it before. Why is that, I wonder? And I, how do your
8: children respond, by the way?
7: Uh, my children usually respond as, Yes, Mom, we know we have to listen to you. <laughs>
0: Over one-third of American Muslims are African-American, another feature that distinguishes the Muslim landscape of the United States. Contemporary scholarship suggests that as many as 20% of African slaves were Muslim, though many converted, some forcibly, to Christianity. In the early 20th century, a number of Muslim movements took root among African-Americans, and a few black Muslim icons entered American culture. Muhammad Ali, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, and more notoriously in recent years, Louis Farrakhan. His militant Nation of Islam is in fact a splinter group of the original Nation of Islam, which underwent a thorough reform after the 1970s. Farrakhan's movement today has tens of thousands of members in comparison to the 2.5 million members of mainstream African-American Sunni Islam. Ali Ramadan belongs to this lineage.
9: I I was born as a a Muslim here in America more than 65 years ago, and I did not stress that fact uh, in my life as a child. Uh, My goal at that time was to fit into a world that did not understand me uh, or accept me as a person of color who was not a Christian and whose parents were seeking to teach him a A strange language. Uh, Those things uh, only made me more of an outcast. Um, I, in in short, I had three. I saw it as having three strikes against me before I came to bat. I I did not reject my faith. I, I kept it hidden and sought to be like the white students in my class. At that early time in my life. My white classmates in public school were released on Tuesday afternoons to attend religious services, and I remained behind with my teacher. I was given the job of washing the blackboard. as She babysat me while her colleagues were relaxing in the teacher's lounge. So, so you see, there, there was not a large incentive for a black child to be proud of the fact he was a Muslim. As an adult, I acknowledged my faith, but I did not think it was an important aspect of my life as I pursued the American dream and acceptance. I, I was wrong. The, the events of September 11, 2001, forced me to confront my faith in a way that I had not anticipated. First, I heard and read the awful things people said about Muslims and my faith. I became angry at them and their ignorance. My response was to become more observant as a member of my faith. I focused on my holy book and made an effort to study the faith of others. Over the years, I had approached my faith from two perspectives. My spirituality was the acknowledgement that there is something in this universe that is so much more than me. My religion was my effort to know that something better. Islam served that end for me. Recently, when I was attending the mosque, I noticed young men uh, learning to recite the 114 surahs of the Quran. Those who have accomplished that effort have truly taken on and succeeded at wonderful tasks. But I could not help but think that understanding is as important as reciting. For my understanding allows me to recite the whole of the Quran in under five minutes. It's simply, I am the Lord thy God, and I am a jealous God. Worship me and me alone. I see the rest as footnotes. I say that because I see a man as pursued by what I call the four horsemen of destruction, which are arrogance, ignorance, greed, and jealousy. As I look at man's history, I can assign all the wars, human abuses, and man's indifference to suffering to one or more of these horsemen. It is only when we worship the one God, as my holy book instructs, that we remain humble. The sad tragedy is, that so many of my brothers and sisters in the Muslim world who have had this wonderful book fail to understand its meaning.
0: Along with hundreds of essays, We've also received striking photographs from the people in this hour and many others, including Ali Ramadan, as the only African American student in his kindergarten class, and a beautiful picture of him with his daughter, one of his 11 children. And while Nakisha Pettiford shared an image of her with her local Girl Scout troop, Maria Romero uploaded a photo of marching with her daughter in the Fourth of July parade. The best way to see all these images is to visit speakingoffaith.org. We've created an interactive map that presents each person's story in context through the essays they've written and audio of the more than 30 people we called up at home or at work. You also gain a better geographical sense of where these stories originate Indonesia and Turkey, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, England and Canada, and robust Muslim communities in states like Texas and Michigan. Explore this richness on our Living Islam website and subscribe to our podcast at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett. More after a short break. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media.
8: Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its Campaign for Love and Forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org.
0: Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Living Islam. We're experiencing voices and stories that embody the breadth of humanity of this faith in nine very different American lives, hearing about ordinary as well as sophisticated aspects of Islam that are often obscured by headlines or platitudes. Hundreds have written to us from all over the world in recent months in response to a query we issued on how Muslim faith and practice is woven into the fabric of modern lives. They offer glimpses inside the varied human reality of what is often referred to politically and in the singular as the Muslim world. And they illustrate a creative convergence of Islamic spirituality and American identity that is unfolding largely unnoticed in the U.S.
10: Okay. Well, I'm, I'm. My name is Ruben Jackson. I'm a 52 year old African American Muslim living in Washington D.C. I'm. I sometimes call myself a, you know, a lost problem child because I'm kind of a quirky believer, and and I think that you have to come to whatever it happens to be as as you are, and you go from there.
0: Ruben Jackson is an associate curator at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. He converted to Islam in May 2002.
10: I leave work early on Fridays to uh, go to Juma at the Islamic Center. Every time I walk in the masjid, I think about childhood because it's not like the Christian church. There are no pews. It's just it's this beautiful, ornate room with this carpet. And I, I see... Uh, brothers who bring their sons or daughters in, young sons or daughters. And for them, it's a room with, and I know they're thinking, well, they just want to run. They just want to run in there. And there, there are times I want to run. And uh, anyway, a couple of weeks ago, this, this young man was up, and his father was talking to somebody. Cause I usually get there 30, 40 minutes before uh, called to prayer. And, and so the young man started, he just kind of got up, and he started doing the moonwalk on the carpet, which I just thought was, I just thought was wonderful. Uh, and he looked at me and he kind of stage whispered, "He said, I love Michael Jackson," and and I said, you know, so do I. But of course, now his father turned around; and was appalled. But I had already, i had kind of given him a fist bump, and I thought, well, maybe I crossed the line there, but. Well, like most African Americans, as I said, I was brought up, you know, Baptist, I was brought up in the Christian church, which I don't ever see as a contradiction or anything bad because I I think that being a Christian has made me a, a better Muslim because the the foundations are, are not so far removed. But anyway, uh, I thought about that young man because look, I got thrown out of church as a kid because I... I was trying to figure out the chords to this song by The Temptations, and I snuck in the uh, sanctuary one day and started playing this. They, our church got this new piano, and the minister caught me. And of course, this was terrible. You know, he called my parents. So it's sometimes it's, it's a matter of trying to find, like any any uh, any denomination that maybe the community that's right for you. And though I'm in my fifties. And I don't want to be 20 or 25 again. I've run into a number of younger Muslims in, in D.C., and I've, I probably have more, in some cases, in common with them. And they don't see these great contradictions between, say, loving, like, Michael Jackson and, and, and being, quote-unquote, a good Muslim.
4: Uh, Being a Muslim and a lesbian has not been a challenge for me, as most people would have assumed. Uh, My faith in Allah, as all-encompassing, keeps me strong, knowing that I am not a separate entity, but a wave in His creation. That gives me peace and joy. My my family has disowned me for the sole reason that I, I was a lesbian and therefore a sinner. I forgive them for sinning by judging me and deciding where I belong in the afterlife. I pray that they can see the beauty in the creation and the perfection of it all.
0: Feruze Faison was born in Turkey. She wrote to us from New York City, where she's lived for 20 years.
4: Growing up in Turkey, you were bombarded with Sufi... Poets, beautiful, loving, accepting words. So Rumi and Yunus and their words just made me believe that love is what rules and nothing else. But there was always something missing. Um, I was deeply into Sufism in my 20s and I did my pilgrimage, that was one moment that I felt one. I really felt the oneness. But when I came back, I was still reading and exploring and meditating, and there was always something missing, and I never was able to pinpoint it. And in the meantime, while all this was happening, I also um, wanted a family. I wanted a child actually, and, um, and I didn't know any better. So <laughs> and I wanted to make my family happy and proud, so I married a, a man, had a child, and, um, and had a very miserable life for quite a long time. I was making myself busy with um, life so that I don't get to face the truth person that I was, because it was just way too scary. Um, it was against everything I was supposed to be, you know. And um, that was living like a muscle, living inside a shell, and not ever, ever looking at a mirror. And, you know, uh, Yunus Emred, as a Turkish poet, he says that knowing yourself is knowing the Creator. If you want to know God, know yourself. So even though I was spending hours and years trying to know God, because I was covering the core part of it, I could never really know God. And so, um, well, one day it happened, and I met this person, my partner. She actually gave me the greatest gift of all, that was the acceptance of who I was, and that was the first step for me to, to go inward without fear. as a Muslim, I have to and I do accept every word of the Quran and the Hadiths. The first sentence that you need to say as a Muslim and believe is, La ilaha illallah. That means there is no God but Allah. And um, understanding what this truly means helps you accept life as it is. Allah is not a separate God somewhere else up in the sky. I guess I could say this is how I feel when I go in the ocean, when I just let myself go and I feel a part of the ocean. There's no distinction between me and the ocean. That's how I like to describe God.
0: Kruze Faison is one of two Turkish Muslims who spoke to us about Islam in terms of rich language and poetry, and the infusion of the Islamic mystical tradition of Sufism in their daily lives. Adnan Onart, who appeared in the first part of this series, our Revealing Ramadan program, recited several of his poems. You can listen to a few of them, including Morning Prayer and Ramadan in Dunkin' Donuts on our website, speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Living Islam, looking inside the nature and meaning of Muslim identity in nine American lives. Ibrahim al-Murashi is a scholar of modern history with a focus on the Middle East and political communications. His life and thought joined the fallout of 9-11 in an unexpected way when an article he wrote as a young scholar was plagiarized by the British government to justify the invasion of his family's native country of Iraq. He grew up in California and has taught in the U.S., Turkey, and currently in Madrid. Ibrahim was drawn to Spain in part by the history of La Convivencia, the relatively harmonious and fruitful coexistence between Muslims, Christians, and Jews that flourished in Muslim-ruled Spain from the 8th through the 15th centuries.
6: Moving to Spain was part of a kind of 10-year journey of finding a place where I was comfortable with my faith and uh, living out my daily life. And what Spain represented was, in a sense, my upbringing. Uh, The sense that I lived in the West, yet had these kind of influences of Islam in my daily life, kind of materialized in the daily fabric of life in Spain. It's where Islam is no longer practiced as in the U.S., it's not the, you know, religion of the culture, let's say. But it was kind of finding these hints of Islam in daily life in Spain, whether it's uh, an Islamic motif in a building in Madrid that is, was not a mosque or not a church. It's something that worked its way into its kind of the architecture of Madrid. Whether it's kind of noticing Spaniards with Arabic last names, uh, Al-Qazar, for example, is, coming from the Arabic word, the palace, or various Arabic words, Islamic terms that have worked its way into the Spanish language. And seeing kind of how the beauty of Spain has a lot of its origins in the Islamic culture, it kind of helps me forget the darker side of how the world sees Islam. So that I could, the fact that I can see beauty originating from the Islamic faith in Spain every day, it helps me forget the reality of the darker side that most people associate with Islam in the Middle East. The symbol I often use for Kunvinvi, to kind of explain it to, let's say, young students, is really the Abrahamic faith. I mean, my name is Ibrahim. Perhaps my mom destined me to be named after the patriarch of the these monotheistic faiths, was that um, I often look at the Star Wars movies, where I say you could consider Star Wars Judaism, Empire Strikes Back Christianity, and Return of the Jedi as Islam, in the sense that you can't have any of the three episodes without each other. And the characters are all the same. The storylines are a bit different. But that's kind of a Hollywood-style way I relate it to my students in the classroom, is that... You can't have one without the other, and they aren't antagonistic stories. What I would ultimately like people to understand about Islam is the complexity within the religion, how various cultures adopt Islam to their local context, and also to understand that it's not a, it is not one monolithic movement, that even though you have the what I described, the static Muslims who tend to take all the media coverage, they are also these fluid Muslims who just want to live their everyday lives. And then you also have to realize that between static and fluid, then there's those Muslims who who are basically secular as well, uh, or you have some Muslims who don't practice the faith at all. And this is one of the points that never gets communicated, is that uh, usually Islam is referred to in the singular. And what I would hope is that people realize that there is kind of what I would argue a banality of Islam particularly in American life, where they just wanted to have a good career, raise a family. And I, if I would have kind of what's my future aspiration for Islam, and particularly in the U.S., is that it becomes banal. It no longer becomes the exotic, the oriental, the what's deemed as a threat or a fear. And I think every culture of immigrants who've come to the U.S. have had this problem. They they were kind of seen as something as an outsider, maybe threatening or unable to assimilate into American values. And eventually, let's say Japanese Americans, I could take as an example, became kind of a banal part of American culture. And my hope is that Muslims, as a religious categorization, just as uh, Jewish Americans, are going to become a banality in American life, something that's seen as normal, that weaves itself into the everyday fabric of American life.
0: We end with Bassam Hassan, a photographer and new media artist. He lives in Franklin Park, New Jersey. He makes art creatively and comfortably, though not without tension, he told us, within the parameters of 1400 years of Muslim teaching, navigating, for example, religious restrictions on three-dimensional sculpture and gray areas in photography. Here Bassam reads part of the essay he sent us.
1: What never ceases to amaze me are the expressions that people have when they first meet me. Because I'm an exhibiting contemporary artist, a lot of time I'll interact with people like curators, museum directors, patrons and such, online or by phone long before I physically meet them. Sometimes I think they expect a wild-eyed, scraggly-bearded man wearing traditional Saudi attire. I'm Egyptian, by the way. Or they think that because I'm a visual artist then I'm some sort of anything-goes hedonistic secularist, Fat blunt in one hand and a glass of Merlot in the other. But I'm not. I'm just an American Muslim. And I'm part of the birth of a new Muslim cultural identity that's truly a historical event to witness. We are the fruit of the American melting pot, where the divisive cultures of our parents' homelands are foreign to us. I do not see color or ethnicity as a hierarchy but as an opportunity, the same opportunity that exists in teaching and learning about each other's religions. This is the true essence of Islam. Yes, we have limitations on what we can and can't do, how much or how little we are permitted to engage with certain aspects of any society, but those parameters are hardly limiting, actually liberating in knowing you are safe to indulge in the permissible. From time to time, though, I find the challenges of being an American-raised Muslim coming more from other Muslims who have not understood the full potential afforded Americans. Yes, I am an artist. My discourse on the world around me is done visually. Mundane details like hairstyle, choice of attire, are at times unorthodox. I listen to music, when I'm inspired to create the objects that I hope will become vehicles of conversation in galleries and museums. I knew this was my future when I went to Hajj, camera in hand, documenting experiences for future audiences, so please, call me Hajji Hippie Artiste. Again, I'm still a Muslim, these activities are the gifts given to me by my creator. We skate, we snowboard, we make art, we make music, we fall in love, we slam poetry, we go baggy, we go skinny, we get emo, we get big. But we also pray, we memorize Quran, we fast, we give in charity, we educate, and we represent. My niche is art. You'll find me in the mosque after the gallery reception, and I hope one day we'll break fast together.
0: For more in-depth interviews of Bassam Hassan, Ibrahim al-Murashi, and all the other voices in this program, be sure to visit our Living Islam website and find their personal story pages. This program came about as a result of several months of work, reading, and organizing the many essays submitted from around the world and doing follow-up interviews early on with over 30 people. And what we intended to be an online exploration, then a single hour of radio, became a larger project. We created Revealing Ramadan, a series of 30 podcasts celebrating people's memories of Ramadan and a companion radio production. And behind Revealing Ramadan and this hour of radio are a pair of fascinating interactive maps of all of the hundreds who've written to us. They blend personal photos, audio, and essays in one place. Discover these many expressions of Muslim identity in our time, across geography, cultures, and the particularities and intimacies of human life on our website, speakingoffaith.org. producer of Speaking of Faith is Mitch Hanley with producers Colleen Sheck, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Mark Sanchez. Our online editor is Trent Gillis with web producer Andrew Dayton. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett.
8: Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute as part of its campaign for love and forgiveness. Online at loveandforgive.org. Additional support is provided by the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide, on the web at fordfound.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
0: Next time, novelist David Troyer reckons with the meaning which language holds as he strives to keep the tongue of his tribe, the Ojibwe, alive. Please join us. American Public Media